In the name of Jesus, dear friends in Christ, relationships, relationships of any kind, whether they're husband-wife, parent-child, sibling-to-sibling, friend-to-friend, co-worker-to-co-worker are impacted by many circumstances in life, aren't they? Many good and many bad. But one of the most difficult, perhaps the most damaging circumstance to any relationship is the inability, ultimately, to forgive. Because relationships of any kind can withstand a great deal in the rough and tumble of living our lives. But no relationship can ultimately withstand and stay intact when one or more parties refuse to let go of a grudge, when they're not willing to forgive, when they want to keep on and holding tight to an ongoing record of wrongdoings, a list of injustices that have been done to them. Now, how many of us are list keepers? Now, think in the good, broad, general sense. How many of us are list keepers? It's okay to raise your hand if you are. I'm a list keeper. I like to make a daily to-do list, a weekly to-do list, a monthly to-do list, and so forth. Some of us may keep a list running on our refrigerator, right? The next time we go to Meyer or we go to Kroger, things that we're going to pick up. Some of us may have a bucket list, right? That's very popular now, those things we'd like to accomplish before the Lord calls us home. And those are all good kind of lists. But there's one list we need to get rid of. There's one list we need to stop keeping. And that's the list of wrongdoings and hurtful things that people do to us. Because ultimately, if we don't let it go, if we don't destroy that list, our relationship with that person will be ultimately destroyed And ultimately, even more importantly, the most important relationship we have in this life with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, will be affected. As we continue in our sermon series on 1 Corinthians 13 and looking at the characteristics of love, and as we're led by the power of the Holy Spirit, again, whose power and presence we recognize and celebrate on this Pentecost Sunday, as we strive to live in that most excellent way, we look at the next characteristic that Paul lists in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we find ourselves all struggling in situations, don't we? Don't we like to make lists? We like to hang on to things that people do to us. And some of us have long memories. Maybe it's a list we keep against a sibling or a friend or a coworker or a neighbor. We really struggle often with forgiveness. I think it's one of the greatest challenges that Satan puts before us. The Christian author C.S. Lewis said this about forgiveness. He says, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until we have something to forgive. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? And think about it. What are some of the toughest things for you, for me to forgive? Is it lying, perhaps? For many of us, that might really be a tough one. Or some other form of cheating or betrayal. Maybe it's being gossiped about, being stolen from. Maybe we have a loved one that was abused in some way, a victim of a murder, a victim of a drunk driver. If we're honest, sometimes the person that we have the most trouble forgiving is ourselves, isn't it? Sometimes we're so hard on ourselves. And sometimes, as misdirected as it might be, we have anger toward God, and sometimes when things don't go our way, we have trouble forgiving, in a sense, God. But the reality is this. Satan would like to have us hang on to those lists of wrongs, those records of wrongdoing, injustices, and hurt. And we can be sure that he's going to be with us every step of the way, working on our heart, wanting us to hurt and not to heal, 
to hate and not to forgive, to dwell in the past and obsess on some things and slowly drown in it, rather than realize and move on by the grace and love of God, and that it's only by the grace and the love of God that we can move on and live in that most excellent way and tear up those record of wrongs. The good news is that God wants us to forgive. He wants us to tear up those lists because God knows that in the end, ultimately, if we are not able to forgive somebody for something they've done to us, if we're not capable of crossing it off the list, it will ultimately destroy our life. Satan wants the hurts to fester in our lives. He wants our heart to become so hardened that that hurt and hardened heart draws us away from our Lord and Savior. And our awesome God does not want the bitterness of unforgiveness to destroy our lives. Because of what Jesus Christ did on that cross, that as I talked about with the children a few minutes ago, that is our motivation. That is our anchor. That is our compass in life because we can forgive. Because God has forgiven us. We can forgive those that we don't think deserve it because God has forgiven us when we don't deserve it. Easier said than done, right? As we live out the challenges of life. One of the things I like about Scripture is that it speaks, I think, to so many challenges that we go through in life today. And I think the issues of forgiveness and some of the side issues that go with it is no exception. Because I think we see in Scripture God talking about the blessings of forgiveness and the difficulties of unforgiveness. And I think as you read through the Bible, as I read through the Bible, you see men and women like you and me living out their lives, struggling with anger and hurt and disappointment and being blessed with long memories, which sometimes is not a good thing when it comes to forgiveness. And besides Jesus himself, I think nobody in Scripture can teach us more about the power of forgiveness than Joseph of the Old Testament. Now, Joseph is one of my absolute favorite characters in the Bible. I think, to me, there is so much that we can learn from Joseph. I think we could do a whole sermon series. I think we could do two sermon series on Joseph. But we're not going to get carried away here with that. And we're familiar with the story of Joseph. We pick it up in Genesis chapter 37, and it goes to the end of the book, Genesis 50. Joseph was one of many sons to Jacob. And Scripture says that Joseph was the apple of Jacob's eye. Jacob did show favoritism toward Joseph. And the other brothers, the other sons of Jacob, didn't like it. And so one day they came up with a plan, and they sold Joseph into slavery to Ishmaelite traders. And as bad as that is, trading your brother into slavery, that was actually plan B. Plan A, they were going to murder him. But they thought good riddance, so they took the favored coat that Jacob had given Joseph, they dipped it in animal blood and convinced their father Jacob that his beloved Joseph had been killed. So they thought it was done. They went on with their lives. And Joseph very shortly gets sold from those Ishmaelite traders, of course, to Potiphar, an Egyptian official. And Scripture says that Joseph, while serving in the household of Potiphar, did well. He was a very hard-working person, and Potiphar gave him more responsibility. And one day, we'll call it this way, uh, Potiphar went on a road trip, we'll call it. And we'll call his wife Mrs. Potiphar. And she came on to Joseph. And Joseph did the right thing and withstood her sexual advances. But it made her mad. So when the husband comes home, she lies and says Joseph tried to attack her. Husband believes wife. Joseph ends up in jail for the next 10 years. So not only was he sold into slavery by not doing anything wrong by his own family, he ends up in jail for a decade for trying to do the right thing. 
But through a series of divine events, while in jail, Joseph comes to the attention, to the favorable attention of the Pharaoh, the ruler of the most powerful nation in the world. And by the end of that decade, Joseph has risen to the position of the number two man, the prime minister in Egypt. Fast forward some years ahead, and there's starvation throughout the Middle East. There's a famine. And many people, including Joseph's brothers, are coming to Egypt, hoping to buy food. And one day they're standing before their long-lost brother Joseph, and they don't recognize him. They just know him as the number two official to Pharaoh. But Joseph recognizes him. And we see in Genesis 45 that, that Joseph starts to test their character with a few tricky screen, schemes and to see where their heart is. And then he's ready to reveal who he is. And he does. And can you imagine the terror in the brothers? They probably figured Joseph had 20 years to have a long-going record of wrongs that had been done to him. And now he was in a life-and-death position over them. What does Joseph do? We see in verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into slavery. Do not be distressed. And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. And if we fast forward to Genesis 45, verse 15, we see Joseph kissed his brothers, and he wept over them. And afterwards, the brothers talked. And to me, this is one of the most striking, amazing sections of Scripture. Because just imagine the emotion, how it must have felt for Joseph to forgive his brothers. Think of what Joseph went through, sold by his own flesh and blood, all the time, two decades that he missed out, living with his family, being a part of his culture, all the opportunities that didn't come his way. And yeah, he had 20 years to get some perspective on it, of course. But we see here in Genesis 45 that ultimately he has come to view that as part of God's divine plan to not only save his family now, but to save his nation. Joseph was ultimately able to forgive one of the most egregious things that one could do to somebody because of the love of the Lord and that relationship he had with God. How does forgiveness feel? Think about the last time you forgave somebody. Whether it was something big or small, how did it feel? Whether you felt you were mostly at fault or not at fault at all, how did it feel? We all deal with issues of forgiveness. We deal with fractured and broken relationships. And maybe each one of us is estranged from somebody in our life, in some relationship. Say, for example, you have a, a grown sibling, a brother or a sister you haven't talked to in five years or 10 years, or 20 years, and maybe you don't even remember what the argument was about. Or maybe you do, and it was insignificant and stupid. <laughs> or maybe it was something very serious. Maybe you're a student at the park, and you haven't talked to somebody for three grade levels for three years. Or there's somebody at work, or somebody at church. When you see them going down the hall, you try to go the other way, or you certainly would not speak to them. How does it feel? when we release that anger and that resentment and we're willing to allow the Lord to work through us and to forgive. When we're in some kind of broken relationship, don't we usually think we're the party in the right? 
I mean, I mean, it usually works that way with our human nature, right? That we're either 75% right in the argument, or 85%, or 95%, or maybe even 100% right. But how does it feel when we let go of that and we allow the Lord to forgive? Forgive someone who, in the world's point of view, maybe doesn't deserve it. How does it feel? Let's go back to Genesis 45, 15. It feels like this. And Joseph wept over his brother. Those were tears of joy. It's been said that forgiveness is man's deepest need and God's greatest achievement. But forgiveness is a process. Now, Joseph had 20 years to deal with the hurt and undoubtedly the anger and the doubts that he would have had toward his brother. And I'm sure the anger and doubt that he had toward God's at time, toward the Lord. But it's a process. And I believe biblical forgiveness is really a four-step process. And the first step is this, as we try to go about getting to the point where we can destroy that record of wrong and forgive. It's to acknowledge the hurt. Something has been done to us. And if we try to gloss over it, pretend it didn't happen, minimize it, it doesn't allow the process of forgiveness to begin. We've been hurt, and we've got to acknowledge that. That's step one. Step two is then acknowledge that someone did the hurting. We blame the person. Because sometimes we might feel like, well, I really don't want to get into it with the person. I'm tired of conflict. I'm just going to gloss over and not deal with it and not think about that person. But if we do that, the anger and the resentment will grow. It'll fester in our heart and infect our heart like a splinter, not removed from a finger, will infect that finger. So we need to, step one, acknowledge the hurt. And step two, acknowledge that there is someone that did the hurting that we're going to have to forgive. Now, as we live our lives, it's not usually that hard to get to step one and two, right? We could acknowledge we've been hurt and someone hurt us. But to get to step three is a bigger leap. That is where we surrender our right to get even. Or in other words, we cross the wrong off the list. Because how will the world say to deal with someone who has wronged us? The world will say balance the scale. Or get out that proverbial yellow highlight marker and highlight it on that list. And never let somebody forget what they did and how they hurt us. Or society may say, friends of ours may say, don't get mad, get even. Seek the revenge. And when we're in a fractured, broken relationship, it's so important to always be bathing that process of getting toward a a forgiveness, a reconciliation in prayer and in the Word of God. But it's especially critical and cannot happen. You cannot get to step three unless you are there in God's Word and in prayer, seeking the love and the grace and the guidance of our Lord. Because this is a tough step to make. Paul writes this, Romans 12, verse 17, Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. And we skip ahead to verse 21. Paul writes, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So as we're working by the power of the Lord and his spirit to get to this third step, where we surrender our right to get even, I think it's important to realize why we do forgive someone. And there's three reasons we forgive people. There's three reasons we take a match and ultimately burn up that record of wrongdoings. And the first reason is this, is that God has forgiven us. St. Paul says it so well and so succinctly in Ephesians 4.32. 
Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you and me. So that's the first reason. God has forgiven us. The second reason is if we don't forgive, the bitterness and the anger and the resentment we feel ultimately will make us miserable. Going back to an earlier illustration, whether we think we're 50% right or 95% right in a given argument, does it really matter? When you're in a state of estrangement and you're hurting, does it really matter how right or wrong you are? Unforgiveness has a way of making us so miserable. It's been said that the only thing that will cost us more than forgiveness is unforgiveness. And that sin of unforgiveness, clinging to that record of wrongdoing done to us, is a cancer. And like cancer, it spreads. And it destroys relationships. It eats away at our own psyche. And most importantly, and this is the real spiritual danger, it shuts us off from the grace of God. Paul earlier in Ephesians 4 at verse 26 gives us some really good practical advice here. And he says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Now, I remember my mom and dad growing up sharing that kind of concept. And maybe you are familiar with that. You try to practice that in your homes. I know we try to practice it in my home very imperfectly. The idea things come up. Things are said. Things are done. Things are not done. Or take it outside the home context. Take it to work or some other setting. And you may not get to step four of forgiveness that day or that night. But if you can begin turning over the hurt, releasing some of the anger, turning it over to the Lord, it allows the Lord to start to work on our hearts. And the process of forgiveness can begin. And yet we might get a better night's sleep as the sun goes down. If we're not so angry. If we realize we're going to have to get to the point of loving and forgiving that person. But more importantly, what we see in verse 27, it doesn't allow the devil to get a foothold into our heart because he wants a base of operation to spread that anger and to spread that, spread that toxic feeling uh, associated with unforgiveness so that ultimately it will not only affect that relationship with that person we're estranged with, but it will affect other relationships as well. Satan wants us miserable. It's spiritual warfare. Do not give him a foothold. Do not give him a base of operation. That's military terminology because it is spiritual warfare, and Satan wants our soul. And unforgiveness and an angry heart starts to march us on the path that he wants us to follow. The third reason we forgive is ultimately we're going to someday need forgiveness from somebody else. And it might very well be the person right now we're struggling to forgive. And then we get to step four of destroying that record of wrong, of working toward forgiveness. And that's where by the power and only by the power and grace and love of God, we begin to reverse those feelings toward that other person who has hurt us until we ultimately wish that other person good. It's been said that step four is the true sign of forgiveness. Now, sometimes that can be tough to get to. Sometimes we can get there in a matter of minutes or a matter of hours. Let's say you're a high school student. You have a little disagreement with one of your friends after first hour. By third hour, things are better. By fourth hour, you're talking to lunch like nothing happened. A husband and wife have a blowout fight one night. And some things get said that are very hurtful. And it's a pretty icy and dicey week around the house the next week. But ultimately, they're able to come to grips. Forgiveness is granted. And perhaps an issue got talked about that really needed to be talked about 
and that relationship is strengthened. But sometimes it's not a matter of hours or days. It may be weeks, it may be months. Or if it's a severe enough hurt toward us, it could be a matter of years or a lifetime. Let's say you own a business and a trusted colleague, someone you considered your friend for years, you find out had embezzled tens of thousands of dollars from that company you own. You find out a spouse has been unfaithful to you the first time or a second time. Someone you love, a child, a grandchild, a niece, a nephew, is a victim of some kind of abuse. Sometimes it takes a long time and only by the power of God to get to that point in the most egregious of situations where we don't wish harm on that person, where we don't wish death on that person, where we don't wish a ton of bricks to fall from the sky on that person. But to get to the point by the power and love of God, that love he has first shown us, to see that person as a hurting human being with needs and cares and ultimately wanting them to know the peace and love of the Lord. Forgiveness is not always reconciliation, though. But that's a whole nother sermon. CBS News recently ran, I thought, an extraordinary story about forgiveness. True story. Ricky Jackson was on murderer's row for 39 years for a crime, for a murder he didn't commit. At age 18, he was wrongly put at the scene of a crime and and told by a witness, or a witness testified that he had pulled the trigger killing a man. So he was convicted. And now 39 years later at age 57... The person who was the false accuser, who was 12 at the time by the name of Edward Vernon, now at age 51, has had attack of conscience. And he goes to the authorities and say that under tremendous duress and pressure, he was encouraged and persuaded and forced to testify that he saw Ricky Jackson pull that trigger. And Ricky Jackson wasn't even at the scene. So there is a retrial. And not surprisingly then, Ricky Jackson, after almost four decades on murder's row, was exonerated and released. Now, Jackson knew that being released from jail was not enough. It wasn't enough just to go on and live the rest of his life, whatever was left of it. If he was really going to be able to live happily and effectively and usefully, he was going to have to deal and confront that person who so falsely accused him and robbed him of so much. So a meeting was set up between Ricky Jackson and the false accuser, Edward Vernon. When they met that day, there was that awkward period of silence, and then they both embraced, and they cried. And Edward Vernon asked Ricky Jackson, can you ever forgive me? And Jackson said, yes. He said, I'm going to be honest, for some years, ironically, I did want to murder you. If I was on murder's row anyway, why shouldn't I kill you? But he said, I ultimately realized that if I ever got out of jail, or even if I didn't get out of jail, if I spent the rest of my life in jail, I needed to forgive you if I was ever going to move on. So forgiveness was shared and accepted. And Ricky Jackson said, the other reason, Edward, that I need to forgive you is not only to get on with my life, but it's because of what my Lord and Savior has told me to do. It's been said when we forgive someone who the world would view does not deserve forgiveness, in the process we really set a prisoner free to realize all along that prisoner was you or me. The only way we get to step four of reversing that feeling of ill towards someone and allowing the love and grace of God to flow again is through Jesus Christ. He's our motivation. He's our example. He went to the cross for every sin ever committed, for every sinner ever born or to be born. Jesus' blood covers it all. As Psalm 103 that Abby read states so well, 
as far as the east is from the west. That is how far God has removed our sins from us. And that is such an awesome passage of Scripture, so filled with the grace and mercy of God. As far as the east from the west, God has wiped that record of wrongdoings that we've done clean. Praise be to God. We can forgive. We can love because God has first loved us. And if you think about it, has there ever been a more innocent person that suffered injustice than Jesus? He was more innocent than Joseph of the Old Testament. He was more innocent than Ricky Jackson on Murderer's Row. Jesus endured and paid for the sins of every single person by he himself who was not sinless, that we might live forever with him. We can forgive because God has forgiven us. And the refusal to let go of anger, to not forgive, to not tear up that list of wrongdoing, invites bitterness into our hearts. And it poisons everything in our lives. And it eats away at our souls. And I believe it robs us of so much joy and so much time and so much satisfaction that God wants us to have in relationships. He wants us to be blessed in relationships. And it also robs us of joy and time and blessedness in that relationship with him. The road to forgiveness and chucking those record of wrongs begins by remembering how much we've been forgiven and don't deserve it. You know, sometimes when you talk with people, they'll say, well, I have trouble forgiving somebody. That person doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Well, we don't forgive because the offending person deserves it. We forgive, one, because God commands us, and two, God wants us to enjoy the blessings, the joy of, un- of forgiving, and not the resentment of unforgiveness. Because when we realize our own unworthiness for God's grace and forgiveness, the sweet love and forgiveness of the Lord can once again flow from our hearts to those who we've been keeping records of wrong for. Unforgiveness is so toxic, it destroys relationships. It's been said that forgiveness is the oil that keeps our souls from burning up in the friction of relationships. I really like that quote. I'll say that again. Forgiveness is the oil that keeps our souls from burning up in the friction of relationships. Because let's face it, all relationships are going to have friction, right? Husband, wife, parent, child, boss, employee, there's going to be friction. But forgiveness is the oil that keeps those relationship gears lubed and working. Leonardo da Vinci, the great painter, when he was working on his masterpiece, The Last Supper. And we're familiar with that, that first Monday, Thursday, Jesus at the table with the 12 disciples. As he was beginning to paint this work, he had a blowout argument with a fellow painter, someone he considered a friend. That friend had said something nasty about da Vinci, really damaging his reputation. So da Vinci now considered him an enemy, and he wanted revenge. And how do I come up with a good way to get him? And then it dawned on him. When I get to the point, Da Vinci saying, of painting the face of the person who will be Judas, instead of having that artistic depiction in my mind of what Judas might have looked like, I'm going to paint the face of my former friend. And so for time immemorial, a pretty good plot if you're a painter and pull it off. For time immemorial, when people look at this painting and they see the body of Jesus, they're going to see the betrayer of the Christ as this enemy. So he went about painting that. He painted the other 11 disciples' faces. And then with great artistic flair and detail, he perfectly painted the face of that former friend on Judas. Then he had one more face to paint, and that was Jesus. So he picked up another brush. 
and something was off. He didn't have his usual artistic flair and touch. He just couldn't get it right. He couldn't get the face of Jesus. And he thinks, my goodness, I'm an artist for a living. I see this in my head, but something's not working in my heart. It's not coming from my hand. And he was perplexed. And then he realized the lack of peace, the turmoil, the struggling he was experiencing was because of the bitterness in his heart that he had toward that former friend. That's why he couldn't paint the face of Jesus. So he went and he sought out that former friend. He confessed what he did, that he had painted his face on the body of Judas. And that friend forgave him. And then that friend who had so wronged Da Vinci asked Leonardo to forgive him. And he did. With that forgiveness shared, Da Vinci went back to work on his painting. And he redid the face of Judas Iscariot. Again, wiping clean, erasing the record of that face of his now restored friend and putting that original depiction of Judas on there. And then he picked up another brush and took a second crack at the face of Jesus. And this time his artistic flair and touch flowed. And he was able to paint the face of the master and complete the masterpiece. May we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, again, whose awesome presence and power we recognize and celebrate this Pentecost Sunday, may we strive in response to the love and forgiveness first shown to us. Release that anger. Tear up those records of wrongs. And strive to live and love and forgive in that most excellent way. That we, like Da Vinci too, may come to see the face of our Master, our Masterpiece. In the name of Jesus. Amen.